Heavenly Father, we come before you now and seek to worship you by hearing from your word. Oh Lord, you are a God who speaks. And so Lord, we thank you that you use frail vessels, uh, vessels of clay, to speak by your power, by your Holy Spirit. And so Lord, we pray that you would use me this morning so that we are able to worship and honour you as we hear you speaking through the pages of the scriptures and through me as I explain them. Lord, we pray that you would touch us by your Holy Spirit's power this morning so that we become more like your servant Jesus Christ and live according to your will. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we have a historic moment, at least in my ministry, in that we come to the end of Hebrews. Uh, It has been a a long journey of going back and forth. I started it when I first arrived here in 2009. It's now 2018. And uh, and so it is a historic moment for me. It's one of the few books of the Bible that I'll have completed in my ministry here. And so we're up to verse 17 uh, through to the end of the chapter this morning. And Hebrews 13, we've seen, is a chapter that is full of exhortations about how we are to live as Christians. The earlier part of Hebrews, the majority of Hebrews, is about how we are to follow Jesus Christ, that we are not to reject Jesus Christ, but we must follow him. We must continue to trust in him as our great high priest, as the one who has paid for our sins. And so then we've had different exhortations that have come through this chapter as to how we are to live. And we pick up this morning at verse 17 where there is an instruction there, there is a command as to how you are to respond to your leadership. In verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. So here we have an instruction about how you are to respond to your leaders, and that is that you are supposed to obey them and submit to their authority. And if you do so, it's actually a blessing to you. Uh, If they are joyful in their service... Uh, that will rub off on you and there will be benefits uh, for you as well. Whereas if you make their service a burden, uh, it can come back to bite you. And then in verse 18, another exhortation is given to prayer. In verse 18, we see that we are supposed, uh, that the original readers were to pray for the author of the letter who was well known to them. They are to pray for, for him. It says in verse 18, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. So here we have an instruction to the original readers to pray. And then the author himself gives a prayer in verses 20 and 21. And that's what I want to focus on this morning as we come to the end of this book. This prayer, this great benediction that is often given in worship services of prayer to the Lord for the people that he is praying for. And then, of course, there's some greetings after that in verses 22 and following uh, and uh, some final uh, benediction of grace be with all of you in verse 25. But this morning, as I said, I want to focus on verse 20 and 21. Because here we have an example of a prayer in the Bible. And whenever there's prayers in the Bible, it's always good to look at them and see what is the person praying for? And is it a prayer that we could use ourselves? Is it one that is good and helpful for us as we seek to live before God as ones who trust in Christ? What does the author pray for? Well, in verse 20 we read, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, 
and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What sort of prayer is this? Well, it's a prayer of petition, of supplication, asking God for something. And what is the author asking God for? Well, he's asking that God would equip the people there, the original readers, with everything good, that God would equip them, give them. Uh, kind of the idea is of equipping an army, a soldier, that you, you give them the equipment that they need, and it's with everything good. And this sounds like a great prayer. Who doesn't want to pray for everything good to be given to them? But as we look at a prayer like this, and then we see the author giving it, and we ask ourselves, how often do I pray a prayer like this? Do I pray for God to equip me with everything good as much as I should? And when I reflect on my own life, I'm very privileged in that I'm a pastor of a church and so that I get to spend so much time in prayer and Bible reading, I still see that I am deficient in my prayer life, in praying as much as I should for God to equip me with everything good. And I'm sure if you reflect upon your own life, you don't pray as much as you should. And you don't pray as much as you should for God to, do, uh, to equip you with everything good. We are raised to be independent people in many respects and we love our own independence. And so whenever we have a problem, whenever we need to do something, we act first and then we might consider praying later. Whereas what we should be doing is praying to God to equip us, to give us the help that we need for whatever crisis, whatever problem we are in. So the question is, why don't we pray this as much as we should? Why do we act first, then pray? And then when we do pray, we're not as constant in prayer as we should be. We don't come to God for equipping as much as we should. And that's what I want to look at this morning. I think there's three reasons that we often don't pray as we should. And as we look at the author and his prayer here this morning in verses 20 and 21, we see that he believed certain things that caused him to pray that God would equip the people with everything good, and including himself, that God would equip him with everything that is good and work in him. So what did he believe that led him to pray this prayer that is often deficient in our own lives so that we don't pray this prayer? Well, one of the things that we don't believe as we should, that the author did, is that we need equipping as much as we should. And so we don't pray as we should. We don't have a very good understanding of our own weaknesses. And so we don't pray as we should. We think we're well-resourced. Thank you very much. My wallet is fat enough. And so I don't need God to equip me. And my muscles are fine. If I have a problem, nothing solves a problem like a bit of elbow grease. Those who have problems are those who just haven't got stuck into the problem and have been able to resolve it. A bit of perspiration solves everything. There's that famous quote, I don't know who it is, that um, the genius is 99%, uh, 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. And that's our attitude often as well. If I just perspire a bit more about whatever it is, I will be able to solve it. And I think this is the great danger for Westerners because we are quite prosperous. Uh, we are quite well-resourced. We are quite healthy people. And particularly people who live in Sydney, one of the wealthiest countries of the world. And in the inner west of Sydney, Sydney 
uh, the inner suburbs here. I think many people here are too wealthy, too fit, too self-motivated to come to God in prayer for help. They rely on their own selves. And so a prayer like this seems absurd to them. Why would I waste time asking God to equip me with everything good when I've got everything good that I need to solve the problems in my life? And so we as selves often reflect this way as well. We don't have a right understanding of our own weakness, and so we don't pray as we should. What's the other thing that the author believes that leads him to pray this prayer of request? Well, it's that he believes in the God that he proclaims in verse 20. And we often don't believe in that God as we should and so don't pray as we should. We don't believe that God is as willing to help and able to help as the scriptures proclaim. The author is very particular about who he prays to. Who does he pray to? Look with me at verse 20 of Hebrews chapter 13, page 1194. Verse 20 of Hebrews 13 says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Who does he pray to? What does he believe about the God that he prays to? Well, firstly, we see that he believes that God is a God of peace. And so, of course, he comes to God in prayer. God is not like some bad-tempered boss that you have to wait to ask something until he's had a nice meal. After lunch, maybe, is when you go to your boss and ask for annual leave at that time of day because hopefully they'll be in a better disposition to actually grant what you have asked. That is not the God that we worship. Our God is a God of peace. The author believes that God is a God of peace, and so he can go to God and ask for him to equip him with everything good and for his readers to equip them with everything good. And he also believes that God is a God who makes promises, who makes covenants. We read that in verse 20. It says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. It's a God who makes promises, that is prayed to by this author. He knows that God has promised to help. And so therefore, it's natural for him to go to God in prayer. God is always dependable because he has made promises and these promises are eternal. What does it say in verse 20? May the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant, the eternal promise, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, God hasn't given us a promise that's like a promise uh, gift certificate from a shop and it has an expiry date and you've got to be very careful that you use it up in time or otherwise it becomes null and void. Jill and I once got uh, for a birthday a a voucher to go to the movies and we don't go to the movies as much as we uh, used to uh, and we forgot about it and we left it and left it and then we found it the day after it had expired. And we actually went along to the cinema and we presented it and said, please, we forgot all about it. Can we see the movie? Uh, We know it's expired. And the checkout teller, the the girl at the window, said, no, it's expired. And so I can't let you in. And, I mean, we were going to see a movie that we didn't particularly want to see, so we just walked away and didn't see it at all. If it was free, we would have seen it. If we have to pay, well, no, thanks. 
And so we walked away. And uh, it was a, a gift voucher that had expired, a promise from them that we could have a free movie, but it had expired. That's not the way God operates. He makes eternal promises, eternal covenants. So, of course, the author goes to God in prayer because he knows that God's promises are still valid and he knows the greatness of God's promises. He knows that God really does want to help his people. Why? Because of the way the promise is expressed, the way the promise has been brought about. What does it say in verse 20? It says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. God has proven that his promise is serious by the fact that it is through, the, through blood. That blood has certified that God's promise is indeed true and good. Kind of like uh, some people when they make a promise, we see this with children these days, although parents caught them that have a nightmare about it, uh, where you prick your fingers and you make a promise that you'll be best friends forever or something and you rub the blood against one another. These days with all kinds of infectious diseases uh, that are transmitted by blood, parents would have a fit. Uh, But it is a common idea that is given that you make a promise in blood, that blood certifies it. And God's promise is made in blood, but not just a prick, a finger prick. It was a promise that was made in the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out. Christ's body was pricked again and again and again. His blood flowed freely at the cross to show that his covenant is true and that it is valid and that God really wants to help his people. If he will give his son... How will he not equip you with everything good? If he has already given you his son as a payment for sin, then you should go to him in prayer and not hold back. And that is why the author does this here. He knows that God is a God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep. And he also believes that God's power is displayed in Christ's resurrection so that God can actually equip you with everything good. How do we know that God has great power? Well, it's by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so God, when he makes a promise, he can fulfill that promise. And he can equip you with everything good. He's not limited in his power, that he somehow desires to equip you with everything good, but he really has to hold up his hands and say, I'd love to help, but... My power doesn't extend that far, which is often the case that we experience in this world with other humans. They may have good intentions, but when it comes to power, they're limited. Jill witnessed this recently when she rang up the public health service to make an appointment for our children to see a dentist. She rang up the public health service dentist. They do free dental care for children in this country. It's a great blessing. She rang up the dentist and said, uh, my son's actually booked in for a particular time slot. Could my daughter be booked in after that, uh, after my son? They said, yes, the appointment slot is free. Uh, but the problem is your daughter is not in the system for this year. Yes, she's attended before, but she's not in the system for this year. So what you actually need to do is you need to ring the booking office. You need to hang up the phone, call back this particular number, and speak to the booking office to get your child to be booked into that time slot. So Jill hangs up the phone, rings up the booking office, speaks to the booking office, says, I'd like my daughter to be booked in for a dental appointment. Is 
she eligible? Yes, she's eligible. Okay, uh, this particular time slot is when I'm after. The dentist says that it's available. The person looks up on the system, says yes, that appointment is available, but it's a time slot that only the dentist can access. I can't access it. Uh, I'm the booking office. I can book her into particular time slots, but not to that particular time slot because that is the dentist's time slot that only they can book into. But what I can do is I can book your daughter into a, another time that you don't actually want. We'll just make up a frivolous day that is available. Then she'll be in the system, and then we'll hang up the phone. You need to ring the dentist back, and then he can actually, once she's in the system, he can move her from that appointment over to the appointment that you want. So that person... Organise an appointment for a totally different day, hangs up the phone, Jill rings back the dentist, yes, she's in the system, okay, yes, I can put her into that time slot, there she's booked in and everything is okay. So after three phone calls, an appointment is made. And then a few weeks later, turns out the dentist goes on leave and, uh, and they, oh, the appointments were both cancelled anyway and had to be rescheduled. Now, we have a great public health system in our country. There are many benefits of it. I'm very thankful for the public health system. And, but it is under-resourced and limited in different ways. And sometimes people want to help, but they're blocked by the system. God is never blocked by the system. He is always able to help. And we know that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His power is supreme. He can raise someone who had sin heaped upon him and deserved to stay eternally damned. But instead he was raised to life because he had the power to pay for that sin. He had infinite power there because he was the son of God. And so the author believes this. And what does that lead him to do? It leads him to pray for help. He prays that God would equip him with everything good and prays for his readers that God would equip them with everything good. And so, as we look at this prayer, we see that the author believes certain things and that leads him to pray. And if we don't believe in God as we should, then it's not surprising we don't pray as we should. And if we don't believe rightly about ourselves that we are weak, then we don't pray as we should. We need to have a right doctrine of man and a right doctrine of God if we are to have a right doctrine of prayer, if we are to come and pray to God as we should. Those who know that they are truly helpless, they're the people who pray. Those people who know that God is a friend, who has promised to help them, who has the resources to do so, they're the ones who go to God in prayer for help. We need to have a right belief about ourselves and God if we are to come to God in prayer. It's a saying, right orthodoxy leads to right orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is our understanding of doctrine. If you have right orthodoxy, right doctrine, then you'll have right practice, orthopraxy. If you understand these things about God and about yourself, then you will come to God in prayer. So the question you have to ask yourself this morning, if you're not as prayerful as you should be, and I reflect upon my own life and I'm not as prayerful as I should be, which doctrine do I need to reflect more upon? Do I need to reflect more upon my helplessness, my hopelessness, my weaknesses, so that I'll be more prayerful? 
Do I need to reflect more upon God and his willingness to help, his love for me, and his ability to help, and then I'll be more prayerful? Or do I need to reflect on both, my weaknesses and God's strength, so that I will pray as I should? But even if we get these two doctrines right, I think there's another reason we don't like to pray a prayer like this. We often will pray for help. And particularly, we'd love it if God equipped us with everything good. But we don't like to pray the next part of the prayer, the purpose clause, as to why God would equip us with everything good. What does the prayer actually say? Verse 20. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work, give his strength, work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We like to pray for help. But do we like to pray for help to do God's will, for his pleasure, for his glory? God's will isn't desirable to human flesh as it should be. What is God's will? Well, it's his commands. He wills that we would live a particular way. And in a passage like Hebrews chapter 13, there's many commands there that we can see. We see at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 13, verse 1, keep on loving each other as brothers. We're meant to love one another. That is the will of God for us. We're meant to not forget to entertain strangers, it says in verse 2. In verse 3, it says we're meant to remember those in prison. In verse 4, it says that we're meant to honour marriage. In verse 7, it says that we're meant to remember our leaders. Uh, in verse uh, 13, we're told to go to Christ outside the camp and bearing disgrace he bore. We're actually meant to be disgraced if we follow God's will. And we're, not, uh, we're meant to uh, remember to praise God, uh, not forget to do good in verse 16 and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And in verse 17... We're meant to obey our leaders and submit to their authority. We're meant to pray for other people in verse 18. All of these commands here in one chapter, they are the will of God. And if we look at them, do we like them? Do we find it easy to love others? Do we find it easy to entertain strangers, to remember those in prison, to suffer disgrace for the sake of Christ? It all sounds like hard work. And that's just the commands in one chapter. And you look at it and say, I'll have no life if I do the will of God. When will there be time for me? And to be honest then, we'd like to pray for God to equip us with everything good so that we can sin rather than do God's will, so that we can spend what he gives us on our own selves. I actually know a man at the moment who has been praying very earnestly for God to equip him with everything good, basically. He would love his life to be turned around and to have great blessings in his life. But it seems like the more he prays, the more God takes away the good that he does have. He didn't have much to begin with, but he did have some things, and it just seems that even those things are now being taken away. And I'm troubled to consider that his prayers for help are for his own pleasure rather than God's pleasure, for his own will rather than God's will, for his glory rather than God's glory, because that's what this prayer is meant to be for 
here in verses 20 and 21, that we'd be equipped with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. I think this particular person is more interested in burning out for himself than burning out for God. And so his prayer isn't answered, that he would be equipped with everything good. And far too often I think that's the case for us as well. If we pray for help with our health, our work, our relationships, for possessions, is it for our will or for God's will that we want these things to prosper? For our glory or God's glory? If we pray for a nice paying job, is it so that we can be generous to other people, to support our family? Or is it for our sinful pleasures? If we pray for our spouse, is it for their benefit? We may bring our spouse often before God in prayer, particularly if they're unwell. Or is it so they can get back on their feet and wait on us hand and foot? Is that what God would will for you, for your spouse to be doing? If you pray for your computer that just doesn't seem to be working, I'm sure everybody in the room has prayed for a technology piece of, piece of technology at some point. I've often prayed for a computer that just doesn't seem to be responding the way it should. Oh, Lord, please make it work. Now, why do I want that computer to work? Is it so I can use it for God's glory, for his will? Or is it so I can spend frivolous hours on Facebook, wasting the time that God has granted me? And if I pray for my sermon, this is one for pastors, if I pray for my sermon, is it for my glory that I want to preach well? Or is it for God's glory that I want to preach well on Sunday? And if he doesn't equip me with everything good for preaching that sermon, is it because... It wasn't for his glory. It wasn't for his will. It wasn't for his pleasure that I wanted to preach. And so I think this is the reason God often doesn't answer our prayers for help. They're not prayers for help to do his will, his pleasure, his glory. And thankfully, God doesn't answer those prayers when they're for other means, when they're for other ends than his ends. If God answered our prayers for help, for our will, we could do far more damage than we currently do. With small resources, with not much equipment from the Lord, and with not much power, not much strength, our sins are more limited. Do you realise that? The harm that you can do with your sins is limited by maybe frail health, maybe by not having much money. Whereas if God gave you more resources, your sin may know no bounds. What's actually stopping us from becoming a Hitler or a Kim Jong-un? head of North Korea. If we examine our own hearts, could it be that the only thing stopping you from becoming one of those dictators is that your resources are limited? That God hasn't equipped you with the way he equipped those dictators. He hasn't given you the strength that he'd given those dictators. Here's a question for you. If God gave a Christian all the resources of the world, and great health, would it actually be a good thing? If he put one Christian in charge of the whole world, would it be good if you were that Christian in charge of the whole world, had all that equipment from the Lord and all that strength and power? 
Or would you end up using it for your own will once you got to be top dog of the world? And so I think God often doesn't answer our prayers for equipping and for power because he knows that it would be for our own will, our own pleasure and our own glory. And so if we are to pray a prayer like this, we need to get serious about the sin in our life before we will easily pray it. We need to see our sinful will as odious and a source of ruin rather than a pleasure. We need to believe that doing God's will yields far greater joy than doing our will. And only then will we truly pray a prayer like this, once we realise that God's will is what we should be about. And that's when we'll want to pray this prayer. So we should pray this prayer. It's a marvellous prayer in the Scriptures. But first we need to clean up our doctrine and our lives if we are to see a prayer like this answered or a motivation in your life to pray this prayer. You need to understand how helpless you are. And I do as well. If I want to pray more, I need to understand how helpless I am. And I need to also understand how great God is. And then I will go to him in prayer. And I need to believe that God's will, God's pleasure, God's glory is my desire. That I want to align my will with his. And then I'll want to pray a prayer like this. The author believed these things. And so he prayed. If you and I believe them too, if you truly believe that you are weak, and you truly believe that God is great, and you truly believe that his will is what you want, And you'll have trouble getting off your knees. And you'll have trouble staying away from a prayer meeting. Because you know that is your lifeline as to how you are to live for God's glory in this world. Let's come to him in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for thinking that we are strong and that you are weak. Forgive us for valuing our will and glory and our pleasure more than yours. Oh, Lord, help us to understand how frail we are. And, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand how strong you are, how loving you are, that you have made a covenant in blood with us. And so, Lord, we pray that you, the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, we pray that you would equip us with everything good for doing your will. And may you work in us what is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.